Welcome to an original series, The Podcast, celebrating our favorite shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is, as always, my friend and co-host, Adam. (laughs) How's it going? It's good. I am excited to get into this penultimate episode of Halt and Catch Fire Season 1, entitled Up Hella Ah, or Ah, I don't know. I don't know how it's pronounced. Of the titles of the season, it's the one that makes the least sense <laughs> on paper. The two one fours comes in at a close second, but I think you figured something out about that last time when we were talking. This I had to do some digging to figure out, and we'll get there. I'll explain what I've discovered. But as a whole, I think that this was a phenomenal, like penultimate episode to get us into the finale as a person who has seen this, but has forgotten a lot of it. I think this was the first time that I wanted to just keep going. Like I wanted to see how is this going to resolve because of all the tension that we're left with by the end of the episode. What did you think? I again had to refrain from just letting it go right into the next episode because I really, really wanted to. But as we've discussed many times, that would ruin the sort of flow that we're creating here where we really just stop and, you know, to smell the roses, to appreciate each episode for what it is and what it does. And yeah, this is great. This is the first time really where we kind of get out of Cardiff, out of Dallas and and have a bit of an adventure with this gang. We're in Vegas, baby. Convex 83. Exactly. I'm excited. <laughs> But, you know, before we dig in to this episode, I do want to rewind to the last episode because... (laughs) Well, you just mentioned the title of last week's episode, which was the 414s. And I did a little digging myself because I wasn't entirely sure why it was called that. I'm sorry, the episode's called the 214s, but based on the 414s, which was the cover of that Newsweek article or magazine cover about hackers that Boz was reading in the episode previous to last episode. 214 happens to be the area code of Dallas, where Cardiff is based. And 414 was the area code in Milwaukee, where the hackers originated from that that article was based on. So, of course, this is dial-up modem time, right? So if you're a hacker back in 1983, you have to use a phone line and a modem to dial in remotely to wherever you're hacking. So it's all based on your area code. That's how the FBI, I'm sure, tracked down the 414s to Milwaukee. And of course, the 212s is a play on that for really just for Cam. She and Boz together, but it was Cam doing the physical hacking. (laughs) That makes total sense Yeah, that it would be that. That's actually just phenomenal that you figured Isn't that it? out. So It's interesting. Very, yeah. That's really... <laughs> that but like, I like of, that. Oh, yeah, and I like that they didn't just spoon feed that to you. That It's kind of cool that they made you think about it and made you do some... Uh, made me do some sleuthing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in my research, too, it, I found out that the 414s were... Of course, they were caught, uh, but what they were caught doing was basically hacking into the Los Alamos lab in 1982, 83. So that's kind of a big deal. 
I don't know if this is true, but back when they would they would essentially hire people like this, the government would then hire them to help prevent other hackers from doing the same thing because most of these places had no idea that this was even possible, <laughs> that someone could remotely hack into their facility or their lab. So it was a kind of the wild west of hacking back then. Wow. Well, that's yeah. that's cool, man. I'm glad you figured yeah. that out. So. <laughs> I was going to sleep good tonight anyway, but now I can sleep a little bit better knowing that <laughs> yeah. that mystery is solved. Even yes. it, I didn't know it was going to be a mystery to be solved, but right. clearly you and, brought that to the table. And, and now I'm excited to hear what you think this title of this episode means, because I, well, after watching it, I had to, have not one idea, <laughs> not one clue. Yeah. I had to look it up. Oh, and okay. That's fine. That's, yeah. So. I mean, I, I basically did the same thing. I did some research, but... No one had like a definitive answer until I figured out mm-hmm. that it was based on the area codes. And then I was like, oh, this all makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and get started. And my all explanation right. will come in due time. <laughs> the cold open puts us in the car. We're finishing kind of where the last episode leaves off. Not finishing. We're starting where the last episode leaves off. Right. And I've been in these car rides, Adam, these 18 to 20 hour trips I would take out to Colorado from Arkansas going on ski trips because no way am I taking a plane (laughs) to do that. That's really expensive. But I remember being kind of scrunched up in vans where you couldn't sleep and everybody kind of smelled weird because you're in the same car with the same people. There's food and that there's probably a few French fries that have gotten caught in between the seats and it's just (laughs) kind of gross. Yeah. But at the same time, they're all kind of making do. You've got Cameron listening to, well, they're all listening to some talking heads, which is great. Cameron's eating a burger. Joe's writing his latest and greatest sales pitch. And I, you know, Donna's the responsible one driving. And Gordon's just kind of, <laughs> you know, chipping in when he can. It's, yeah. uh, it's good stuff. And it's interesting that Gordon, Cam, and Donna are all in the front seat. And Joe gets the whole back seat to himself. Because kind of he sold out. his car. He yeah. deserves the backseat. Exactly. He, he earned it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he earned it. So the title of the episode actually comes from this thing that Joe's talking about with these Vikings and burning mm. this huge wooden ship to the ground after they won a competition. Up Heliah, it's a Scottish festival that takes place. And oh. it's literally called, it, it literally translates to Up Holy Day, I think, all. Up Holy okay. Day All. And it says, according to the uh, the ever-accurate Wikipedia, it's a type <laughs> of fire festival held annually. Not the kind of fire festival that took place back in 2016. Yeah, not F-Y-R-E. <laughs> not that fire festival, yeah. <laughs> which was epic. The two documentaries were amazing. Yes, different kind of fire festival. Uh, it goes from January to March in various communities in Scotland to mark the end of the Yule season. Mm-hmm. And each festival involves a torchlit procession by squads of costume participants known as geysers that culminates in the burning of an imitation Viking galley. So we start out with the title of the episode embedded in this explanation by Joe, who <laughs> gets kind of the weird looks from everybody else. Like, yeah, that was information we And you're telling us this need. why. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. It's great. Yeah. And then they, uh, they get to the hotel and find out that Cardiff Electric doesn't have a room, rightly so. <laughs> the account's been frozen, the credit card has been declined, and they have to figure out what to do. They're scrambling. Yeah. Uh, that's when we're kind of left with the opening titles before we get back to the uh, to the hotel lobby. I love that he tries to check in as Bosworth as well. I mean, assuming because he probably was originally 
the one booking the suites and Joe just kind of pretends to be Bosworth, but that kind of backfires when he presents him with his personal credit card. <laughs> what's what's funny about that is he doesn't skip a beat. The no. the attendant says Joseph McMillan. I thought you were John Bosworth. I can pay, what does it matter? <laughs> right. Yes, it does. You could yeah. be a fraud, which you right. are. A fire fraud. Wait, no, I'm not doing that. Whatever, I forget it. <laughs> but I did love this hotel lobby. I, I was like, man, they really recreated an 80s vibe so well. Like everything about it, it felt like such a period set. Or maybe it was a real hotel that still exists that hasn't changed much in uh, what yeah. something years. It's pretty immaculate, though. I mean, it's a it's an yeah. impressive lobby. It reminds me of a hotel. Well, it's and there are probably lots of hotels like this, but I remember staying in a hotel as far as like a, a youth conference that I was in, where the, all the rooms were encircling the quad, yeah, like the or open, like, yeah, kind of atrium area in the middle. Yeah, yeah, and all the rooms kind of surrounded it. I thought I think that's what this hotel was, but they never say or we never see specifically what hotel it is, which I kind of like because then you're yeah. not distracted by, well, is that the Hilton? Did the Hilton really exist back in 83? I mean, no, right. it's, it's the hotel that houses the convention that apparently is adjacent to a porn convention, which right. comes up a little later. <laughs> right. I found hysterical. Then the credits roll. We're still in the lobby. We find out that they've also lost their booth because of, I guess, similar circumstances. But Gordon gets this really cool idea to, quote, make room in the inn for them. So he sends Donna off to buy a booth for whatever it takes, tells Joe to get into a blue suit. And then I guess Cameron goes with Donna as well. And we don't get all the details, but I love how this whole sequence plays out over the course of the next couple of scenes. It's, It's like Gordon kind of extending himself from that moment where he steals the the giant in the previous episode. Like, I didn't know you could do this, Gordon. I'm like, dude, you're you're really coming to your own as a, we got to get this done. Yeah, it's like this newfound sense of purpose and also confidence that he's going to do whatever it takes. And even when Joe is kind of feeling defeated and not sure if he can talk his way out of a situation, Gordon's like, no, no, we're, I've got an idea. I've got a plan. And I also love that he's just like throwing cash around everybody. Everything's with cash. Like, <laughs> yeah, they have like 11,000 in cash. I guess they got for Joe's car and they're just dipping it up as necessary. Yeah. That's not a lot for a car, but maybe it was oh, for 83. Yeah. At the time. And, and yeah, and probably to sell it that quickly to find somebody interested, kind of like a pawn shop. You're not going to get true what it's really worth necessarily. Yeah. But if you need cash yeah. fast. Yeah. So the the plan involves going to this uh, suite because all the big players have suites where all the after parties are like, that's where the deals are made. And they go to a place called the Protonics Suite. (laughs) Which is really funny because I take a medication called Protonics for acid reflux. And I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's probably gross. what it migrated to based off of the <laughs> yeah, products that they it were. It evolved into. <laughs> let's get out of the tech industry. Let's get into medicine. That's probably yeah, a little let's more Let's get lucrative. into uh, yeah, pharmaceuticals. <laughs> that, yeah, that's where the money is. <laughs> yeah. Plastics. <laughs> so they're in this suite, right? And everybody's sitting down, and there's this compelling presentation of what's called the Occasion Master. <laughs> Compelling in quotes. <laughs> yeah, compelling. Yeah. <laughs> when I say compelling, I mean really lame. It's bad. Yeah. <laughs> and it's made to be bad for the sake of just setting up the scene, giving us a laugh. The best part of this whole pitch, Adam, because these two salesmen are like just reading copy. Yeah. I think they're brothers too, right? I think they are. Yeah, they look like brothers. 
and they have big beards. Yeah, they just like they're just kind of not disheveled, but they're just clearly not. They're the Gordons of of their company. There's no Joe, <laughs> right. and so they have to be Joe. Right, and they say. From the garden party to the bachelor party, the occasion master is truly your master of ceremonies. (laughs) It's so terrible. So terrible, but so beautiful. And yeah, and the delivery is horrific. And the title, the occasion master, what kind of product name is that? It's the master of all occasions for printing. Okay. Yeah, I guess. I mean, and Gordon brings up a good point. He said, it would take me 20 minutes to print out a thank you note that I could handwrite in like five minutes. <laughs> right. And he starts kind of getting the mob mentality with all these other folks. Yeah. And I love it because he knows exactly what he's doing. Right. And he knows what buttons to press to get them. Not to piss them off, but to kind of throw them off their game. Yeah. And one of the buttons they press is the print button, which clearly was not the button they needed to press <laughs> no. because the paper gets jammed. And then he mentions that IBM is coming out with a similar printer. And the camera does this great kind of fade shot to Joe, who <laughs> gives him a look like, oh, I now see. I That's why it. you want to yeah. be in a blue suit. And he doesn't even have to say anything. He right. just kind of gives this look, which leads into the hotel lobby and the conversation that Joe's having with these with these it's brothers. Like he, it's like he mentally passed the baton to Joe. Like, hey, now you're on, Joe. Do your thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I set you up. Yeah. It's like a volleyball. Like, here you go. Yeah. Time to put the spike down. Yeah, do yeah. it. And he does. It's so great in the ho- hotel lobby. They end up getting the suite because Joe convinces these printer brothers to give up their suite thinking that IBM is just going to go ahead and take them out, but that they could break even, even giving in their food spread. As funny as the scene is, though, I do kind of feel bad that these two brothers get sort of swindled <laughs> by them. I mean, clearly we, we want our guys to win. We want Cam, we want Joe, we want Donna and Gordon to all succeed. But I kind of feel bad for these guys that they were so, that they're so kind of inept that they would fall yeah. for this this ploy because uh, it feels like they're just two brothers that are just trying to follow their dream you know i'm kind of thinking oh this is where my empathy kicks in i'm like oh you know these poor guys are gonna go home defeated and maybe they'll go on to do something better but still <laughs> i'm gonna push back on that i i would okay. agree in part but two or three things happen that kind of make me go i'm fine with it one <laughs> joe offers them quote full freight so True. they're not losing any money for the suite or the food So they're recouping those costs. Two, a year before, Gordon told Donna that he saw their demo and it sucked. (laughs) He said it was bad. Now, assuming that they're pursuing their dreams, over the course of this last year, they probably haven't gotten a lot of customers and this whole conversation reinforced it. So yes, idealistically, these are not people you want at Cardiff Electric on the dream team. You don't want them part of the freak show, as Gordon says. I think my theory is that they're on the tail end of... Let's give it one last shot. And when they find out that nobody's buying this thing and they can actually recoup the cost, they can go home and apparently go into the medical field after this. (laughs) I think that there's a happy ending there. So my theory is that they end up becoming helpful for you who takes this medicine. And they found their aha moment in the medicinal industry and they lived happily ever after. So it's like the uh, it's like in the show Shark Tank. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but you know, how, oh yeah, love how Shark people Tank. pitch things, and sometimes you know ideas aren't very good or aren't executed well, and sometimes the sharks just have to tell them you need to quit while you're ahead because you're just sinking good money after bad, you know, more and more, and yeah. you just need to stop. So I think yeah. in that way you can kind of justify. Well, maybe they just 
kind of helped them from further investing time and money into a product that clearly is is not going to end up going anywhere. Yeah. Our our heroes did good. Yeah. yeah they did good. <laughs> so then we moved to the exhibition hall. Donna is getting a crummy booth because that's what happens when your cards declined and your company is under the watch of the FBI. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> nobody expected Cardiff Electric to show up. They have this booth that is apparently not very functional. This is when we spot the uh, booth babes, as they're referred to <laughs> at yeah. the convention, when they're actually you know porn stars. Cameron gets an idea, and she says, I'll get them to the party. You make sure it's one to remember. I'm like, what are you going to do, Cameron, <laughs> at this point? I'm excited. Yeah. Well, you know, regarding booth babes, I have to say that I first learned this term when I worked for Apple when we were do our Macworld conventions. And this was, Apple didn't do this, but you know, all the third party vendors that would attend this convention would, they would have these booth babes. They weren't porn stars. I don't think, I think they were just attractive looking women dressed, you know, scantily and they would be there to hand out brochures or just, you know, to get people to come into the booth. They were the draw. And I don't know if it's still done today. This was like 15, 20 years ago that I was made aware of this practice. It might be frowned upon in today's society <laughs> to, to do something like <laughs> yeah. that. But it was a real term used in sort of the industry. And I didn't know it mm. dated back quite this far. Maybe this was the first year it was ever done, but it sounds like they, mm -hmm. they act as though this is a common practice in terms of scheduling gotcha. the convention at the same time as this porn convention so that <laughs> they coincide. Gotcha. But again, that, that was never the case in, in my experience. I love that there's a, there's a stereotype of the fact that the folks that are at Comdex don't gamble. Right, so they right. have to find other ways to get their money. <laughs> right. It's like they're too intelligent to realize. Like they understand the odds are against them. So they're not going to waste their time and money unless they're like card counting. Because <laughs> yeah. they're so yeah. smart. <laughs> they can, can just get them walk in. And so they realize that this isn't, yeah, this is, it's, that's why everyone chooses Vegas. Because, hey, you know, bring people in. Hey, they're going to spend money. They're going to gamble. They're going to go to shows, whatever. And yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a different clientele or a different crowd going to Comdex. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and I guess for this, an appropriate adjustment to that clientele. Right. Right. Yeah. So Donna, she takes off and Cameron starts kind of getting her idea together. We get to the now what's called the Cardiff suite instead of the uh, the Protonic suite. It's now been taken over <laughs> right. by our Cardiff gang. Lots of action in this suite in this episode. I didn't realize until I was taking my notes that there's a lot of stuff that happens in this kind of three bedroom suite, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Like the and, mo most of the episode, really. I mean, you think, oh, they're at this convention, but really everything. Like I would say like 75% of the episode is inside the various rooms of this suite. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of cool, you know? Yeah. And in this first scene, I caught a Dutch angle. I think mm -hmm. I did from just kind of a, a, like an upward shot. That was kind of neat. This is where we find out that the giant actually is not able to start. Like it's got problems. Which, right. <laughs> yeah. Of course it does. You're at a convention that you're going to display this revolutionary machine and of course it's not going to work because that's a plot point that definitely needs to happen in yeah. this episode. Why would it and work? It doesn't, it doesn't help that he had to like frantically disassemble it to get it to smuggle it out of Cardiff and then reassemble it. And then, you know, I'm sure mm -hmm. things were not handled with the care that they normally would have taken had nothing have occurred with Boz and the FBI. Right. And then that gets us to this really neat montage of solving the problem 
that they have. Mm-hmm. So you have Donna and Gordon telling Joe, we need to essentially make a, a static free room so that we can work. Because to your point, I think that's probably what happened is when he disassembled the thing and reassembled it in his garage, there might be some right. stuff that was going on that got into the computer, some static of some kind that may have like shorted something. So there's this back and forth of Cameron carving this display, this like pyramid looking thing, which I thought was yeah. kind of cool out of uh, polystyrene. I'm not going to use the brand name because I'm going to be that guy. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I'm talking about. I I do. And I have to say, I cringed because the sound, the squeaky sound of cutting is my fingernails on a chalkboard. That is, it does the same thing to me. And I was like, please stop, please. I don't want to see or hear that. And clearly they recorded actual sounds of her cutting the foam it's yeah yeah something about that not right yeah (laughs) but the end result is good it's a pyramid with a briefcase and a chain around it that says there's a giant in this box spray painted on the back with the suite number right underneath it i thought that was a fantastic no-nonsense ad for right this mystery box this kind of create create mystery yeah yeah and then Conversely, Joe, Donna, and Gordon create this static-free room to work on the Giants. They're covering all the furniture with plastic, visqueen, or whatever it is, duct tape. Yeah. And I'm going, I know you didn't have all that stuff with you when you, when you came out. You must have gone down <laughs> to some local like <laughs> pre-Home Depot to get this yeah. stuff. with the <laughs> Murder Emporium, you know, where Murder. you get the... <laughs> You know, yeah. where, where Dexter goes to get all his. <laughs> <laughs> I got to wonder what the look on people's faces when they saw them kind of yeah. trying to get all this stuff. Like, you here for the convention? <laughs> like, which one? It'd be yeah. weird. Like, I don't need that. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. That was probably a little too much. Anyway, <laughs> roll that back. <laughs> so we're back in the Cardiff suite full time. Donna and Gordon are still working on the giant camera comes in and she's concerned about it to which donna says it's a hardware issue not your concern yeah <laughs> and so and so cameron just sits on the bed and starts reading the bible which i yeah, think is she's you know can't be on your cell phone yeah she kind of comes in you know, dives on the bed and kind of like she's kind of acting like a kid here you know she's, she's just being unhelpful and just trying to figure out what's going on but she's not really willing to, i mean she clearly did help by building that great pyramid structure in the booth but yeah she's just being very childish here but yeah she yeah, is reading well, the bible so that's it yeah, yeah she doesn't have anything else to do and that's what i think is that she yeah. doesn't have a cell phone to scroll through instagram so she's right, not right yeah, she's just bored but I, I don't think it's necessarily her being immature not caring i think it's more about her being elated that you know what she did a good thing right she did her part. Exactly. He asks her about the booth and asks, is anyone coming? And she says, I would. And then we get the knock at the door. And that's when kind of the whole party starts happening. <laughs> yeah. You got the nerdlings coming in and says, is this Cardiff Electric? And he's like, yes, yeah. it is. Welcome to being the first people at the party, which is really awkward. I never want to be the first people at a party like that because music's not going. It's daytime. It doesn't feel like a party scene. It just looks like a, oh, yeah, we just converted this suite into a, a room to do something but then eventually we get to the actual party yeah but i did hear that they they seemed really excited about you know the shrimp what do you call it shrimp tower and that thing that, that was, was a cool tower yeah shrimp tower <laughs> yeah that that was yeah. a cool thing they're like, like whoa that. guys you know <laughs> hey you do get the they get the first freshest shrimp so maybe that's the key if you want the food true before everyone's yeah. like sneezing on it and stuff <laughs> <laughs> and if you notice by the end of the night that 
tower is pretty much picked over. So the shrimp was apparently a pretty good success for Cardiff. Yeah, and, uh, definitely. So, so good on Joe and the boys and girls. They made it work. For, yep. They made it work. They made it work. <laughs> well, later on, we're still in the suite. The party's hopping. Folks are getting antsy about seeing the giant, which is still not working. We see a couple of conversations happening. Cameron's getting schmoozed by some guy who works in Silicon Valley. And I think we find out later that he's one of the HP guys. Or Xerox. I think I think it was Xerox. Xerox not HP. Yeah. You're right. Xerox. You're right. Because he was also referencing Ethernet. He was going on about the guys invented Ethernet at one point, I heard him say, which is kind of, mm-hmm. I think at the time it was a brand new technology that had just been sort of standardized. So you didn't have Ethernet in every office building at this point. It, that was right. years away. So it was fascinating to hear some of these conversations going on because mm-hmm. it's stuff that we take for granted today. Well, and he even mentions a couple of things like hypertext markup language, mm-hmm. HTML, the early days of the web, and object-oriented, I don't remember the other thing, it's O-O-L-O-O-S, I can't remember the, the full acronym, but I recognized the first two words, and I was like, oh, this is hints at the World Wide Web that we don't have right, right now. just starting. So clearly... Yeah. I think the episode is trying to show us whether it's accurate or not. I'm pretty sure it is because of all the work they've done to make it as accurate, uh, as right. time right. accurate as possible, that this stuff was being talked about in the early 80s, this idea of markup language and the ability to have a, a universal language for people to be able to access information. And for computers to be networked, yeah. So she's talking to him. Donna is talking to a guy that knew her and yeah, from, Gordon. From back when they went there for the symphonic, I'm guessing, somehow. I, yeah. 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 And he still thinks that they're working together for logistical, for, you know, obvious reasons. She's there. She's not just being a, a support <laughs> right. system. Right. It's kind of awkward, Adam. I and it's kind of like Joe is looking at Cameron, and I don't think he's jealous, but I think he is just sort of like, hmm. I'm not the only guy in her life or the only influence in her life that is making her feel good. And the same thing with Donna. I don't see Gordon being jealous or anything. These two things are kind of setting up what we see later, ultimately, with these yeah. conversations between between these two couples. And I like it. I like that it's not like a throwaway moment, that it really is purposeful to get them moving forward to some of those higher tension moments that we see in the episode. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, how both Donna and Cameron are sort of kind of being a little bit hit on in these scenes like you know there's not a lot of women there you know that aren't booth babes and and not ones that are intelligent that can talk shop like they can so of most of these people in this room are men and they are gravitating towards the two women clearly yeah so the computer's still not working Joe's getting frustrated and he gets this idea so he takes the giant if I'm Gordon, I'm going, what are you doing? You're basically just ruining. I mean, let's get in the car because we need to leave because this is going to be a failure. But this is pure Joe McMillan selling. And I yes. love it. I love the psychology. He holds up the giant like it's Simba from The Lion King. <laughs> yeah. And he lays it down. And he basically gets these people to fall in love with the potential of this machine. Right. The kind of the idea of the machine. Yeah. And it's, it's like a magic act. So he's right. doing this sleight of hand by saying, absolutely, I'll show this to you. But you know what you want? Vegas wants you to have the best and all. And he does this whole thing. Yeah. I'm not going to go into it. But he finishes it by saying, and we've got 
four VIPs. They're going to make you fall in love. And tonight, let the giant turn you on. And then he turns the music <laughs> up and they're like, yeah, yeah! I loved it, it, man. I was like, that's very convincing. It really was. He basically was saying, like, I could show this to you now, but I'm going to show it to you tomorrow. Tonight, let's have some fun. Why do you need exactly. to see it now? You know, and it's yeah. it's great. It's misdirection. You know, you're basically saying, look at this shiny thing over here. So you don't know what I'm not doing over here, you know, or what I am yeah. doing over here. Yeah. yeah. It's the prestige, man. It's exactly. The prestige. <laughs> great, great movie. And, yes. uh, and, and of course, he does spray champagne all over the place. And I'm like, and not near... Not near the computer. <laughs> and Gore, if you look closely, Gore, he is like, pull. he takes it off that little pedestal <laughs> and like puts it behind. So he looked a little nervous. I could sort of sense that like, no, no, this is our baby. What are you doing? But what's funny is I thought he was going to take it and then move it back into the room and then continue to work on I, like, it. Like keep working like, no. on it, right? Yeah. No, they decide, yeah, let's just have some fun while we're at and it. And Donna's like, don't tell here. my children about this. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why would great. I? <laughs> One of the things I, lo- I love about the sales pitch is that he describes it as being a feather light or a feather oh, weight yeah. 15 pounds. <laughs> yeah. so, it's so funny. It is. And again, as we've said, Lee Pace is a big guy. Even when he holds that thing up over his head, it, it's big, you know, it's a giant. Him. It's a yeah. giant. <laughs> so imagine for an average human being holding that in their backpack or something. I mean, it's a big machine. No, it's but just, wow. For the time, it wasn't. So that's yeah. it's all comparable. Yeah. One observation I want to bring up in the scene is that there's the Cardiff Electric banner, but there's like sp- the red spray paint that Cameron oh, was. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I couldn't tell because the lighting and it showed up again. I was trying to figure out if she had just sprayed something else on top of it or if there were words on top of it that were replacing electric. Yeah, yeah. I wrote it down. Uh, Cardiff is there, but over electric, it's very sloppy, but she spray painted giant, the word giant. Okay. That's all okay. it is. It's just, yeah, like gotcha. Cardiff giant is if, like, don't worry about the word electric. That's old Cardiff. This is the That's Cardiff old giant. Hat. <laughs> yeah. They clearly didn't have time to reprint that banner with the title of the machine. Yeah. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> we'll just, we'll do it, you know, old school. We'll just paint over it. Nobody will notice. Maybe she got one of her uh, her street hooligan friends to do it for her, you know. <laughs> They're in the lobby, like, giving giving these folks tattoos made of right. <laughs> using paper clips and stuff. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I don't think they were invited, but. <laughs> I don't think they were either. <laughs> Maybe they were the other VIPs that we don't get to see. <laughs> well, the, the party's ending. Cameron is still getting enticed by that guy. And then she goes to get pancakes with him because this is what you do after an all-nighter. You organically going to go get pancakes. Joe, um, as I mentioned earlier, he's kind of looking skeptical or concerned of some kind, but we don't get much information from there. And he's actually later on talking to this guy from, I think it's Computer World. Like that's the thing. And apparently he's got a bunch of stores all over the U.S. Was this the the precursor to CompUSA? Do you remember that story? It might have been. It yeah. might have been, yeah. I was thinking Best Buy, but Best Buy was more diverse in terms of the electronics. It wasn't just computers. So, right. Whereas yeah, we'll call it. CompUSA was more of a specifically computer electronics store, but yeah, sure. it, it, it was everywhere. I remember when it went out of business, I was like, wow, things just changed, you know? <laughs> yes. And I think to that point, I think it was because of what Best Buy did, because CompUSA, yeah. they had the same stuff. 
both stores had, they were selling similar things. I don't know if CompUSA sold washers and dryers or like appliances, but they sold audio equipment. They sold DVDs, CDs. Right. They sold computers. They sold stereos. It's funny because I liked CompUSA because the layout was exactly the same no matter which store you went into. Right. You always knew that on the right side was this and on the left side was that and in the back were these. Whereas with Best Buy, you're like, I don't know where anything is. Yeah, and, every location seems different, especially in more urban areas where they don't have like the mm-hmm. same footprint that they can work with. Yeah. It's not as not as ideal. Yeah, I think you're right. CompUSA or Computer World, and this could have been a real store for all I know. It was clearly a more specialized store. And plus, a lot of retailers around that time were starting to open their own stores. Dell was opening their own stores. Uh, right. Apple was opening their own stores. So it was kind of like, well, why do you need to go to a place that sells a little of everything? If you can go right to the, or Gateway had Gateway had their own Gateway country stores. So it was a big trend for a while there were just go to the source. Sony was doing their own stores. Yeah, I could see that. When Gateway showed up in our town, it was a big deal. Gateway was probably the first real affordable PC, I would say. It was a first entry computer for a, a lot of people. Yeah. In that kind of turn of the century period. Yeah, agreed. Like they're agreed. or they're like maybe the first, yeah, you know, first like internet capable computer, you know, where people were f- yes. first starting to get online and and shop online. Sometimes things are really successful for a short period of time and they were and then that's it. Like Blockbuster, you know, hugely successful and then it just went away except for that one. Yeah. In Is it still Washington. around as of this recording? There the is one book? still open. There's yeah. still one. But okay. it's like a private it no, there's no corporate entity anymore. It's just like a standalone hmm. individual. I wonder location. how they get away with the the trademark, though. Do they? I think they. I think it was something where you, they could basically license it. It still Got exists, it. but there's just no with the branding support. and everything. Yeah. Okay. The corp, there's no more support from a corporate entity anymore. But the ah, okay. There's still like a someone still owns the name and the brand, all of that. So I so guess if you want, Patch, if you want to open your your blockbuster store. And, in uh, Arkansas, you might be able to <laughs> just license the name from the rights holder. Yeah. What I would do is I would get away with not having to license it by having a slightly bluer blue and a slightly more <laughs> orangish yellow. And instead of calling it Blockbuster, I'd call it Blockbusta, B-U-S-T-A. Oh. And then call it Vids instead of Video. But it would still be the same font. It would still have... <laughs> and it would only be Video, C- vid- video CDs. Remember those? Yeah, videos. <laughs> That's all you rent. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of which, I know we're off topic, but I, Sorry. But I love this. There's a, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Whataburger. Have you? Oh, you yeah. That? Yeah. Okay. So it's a national brand. Same thing. There is a Whataburger in a town called Russellville, which is about 45 minutes, maybe an hour and a half from where we live, but it's called Feltner's, and I believe it's spelled slightly differently. And it's its own entity. Like it's not not a corporate franchise. Right. It's its own. It has a similar menu, but it tastes different. And it, not that right. I've it's, been to, been to tons of Whataburgers, but I have been to enough to know that Feltner's, which is how I call it. I go, you want to go to Feltner's? As opposed to calling it Feltner's Whataburger. We call it Feltner's to differentiate. But it's got burgers, fries, shakes, all the stuff right. that you've got. The The packaging is similar. It's got the stripes and things like that. But it's, slight, it's spelled slightly different, differently. Yeah. 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 And there was an ice cream shop near us that opened up. And I love ice cream shops, not just frozen yogurt. I like the ice cream shops. There's one down the street called Scoop Dog, which sells ice cream and uh, hot dogs. 
and it's a hot like spot in, in our in our city. But there was one for a while and it was called Scrum Diddly Umptious. Mm. And it was hand scooped ice cream. It was Edie's ice cream. It wasn't like homemade or locally, which was kind of oh, okay, whatever. But I kid you not, the name of the store, Scrum Diddly Umptious, and all of the types of ice cream were modeled after names from Harry Potter and from Willy Wonka, but to keep them from having to pay copyright, they were all spelled slightly different. So yeah, like yeah. Hagrid's uh, Hagrid's Hut, it was like a chocolate sundae. Hagrid would be spelled with like two Gs or something like that. <laughs> Even Scrum Diddly Umptious was not spelled that. It was spelled Scrum Dilly Umptious. And I'm thinking, come on, guys. The law exists to ensure that somebody doesn't profit off somebody else's intellectual property. Clearly, they're getting away with it, but you're not fooling anybody. Of course, you know you're referencing Harry Potter or Willy Wonka. So I really don't know what if they chose to sue if, I don't know, J.K. Rowling was like, I'm going to sue these people. I feel like she should be able to win because you can't just change it a tiny bit. Like, I'm sorry. Like, everyone won in that jury, if they were in a courtroom, would say, yeah, you're totally profiting off of the Harry Potter franchise, even if you're changing things just a little bit. It's just- yeah, it, it's it's the NIL that they have right now in, in college sports, name, image, likeness. That would fall under likeness. The fact yes. is you are using a familiar name mm-hmm. or a familiar identity or icon to profit, even though you're not technically right. doing it. Yeah, I totally agree that just from a creative standpoint, I had issues with the fact that the ice cream wasn't local. We now have one of those called Loblolly, which the ice cream's amazing and it's all creamed locally. It's great. And it doesn't have funny names attached to it. It's just vanilla or, you know, cookies and cream, you know, your basics. Right. I also did not like the fact that those two brands didn't go together. I get the idea that you're doing some kind of like kid fantasy thing, but they don't mesh. Not if you were all. to put something yeah. together like Harry Potter and maybe Lord of the Rings, where you have similar stories, I'm not saying that would work either. <laughs> Or that it's appropriate to do that by changing names slightly. If you're going to do it, make it make sense from a marketing standpoint and from a creative standpoint. Put yourself in a position where you're not just saying, hey, the word Hagrid's cool. Let's make it a chocolate sundae. You know, because Hagrid had a hut and blah, 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 blah. But uh, I wasn't impressed with the ice cream. I was glad that we had a local ice cream shop for a while. Sure. But I understand why it didn't do well in the (laughs) long term. And I'm I'm going to credit that to bad creativity. Yeah, or very little creativity, just trying to there we go. monopolize yeah, let's off just call of somebody else's, you know, somebody <laughs> yeah, else's profiting off of somebody success. else's creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Freeloaders is what we're calling those guys. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, back on track. We're gonna get back to the card of sweet. The giant finally works. Gordon and Donna celebrate by having sex, which is what couples should do. And it gets us to the next morning where Donna is kind of getting honest with Gordon, not in a bad way, not in a mean way. She confesses that she wanted some of the credit publicly, and I really stress the word publicly, for what she did with the giant. Gordon gives her an honest apology, said, I should have asked. But then he kind of provides, I would say, a reasonable but slightly pretentious reason, but a reason that she claps back at for not bringing her along. He said, look, all those nights that I came home late, I was under the gun and I knew that I was taking a big risk and I didn't know if you were going to take that risk with me. And she goes, dude, we're married. We're already (laughs) taking that risk together. And I I, I kind of agree with Donna that she was sort of in it from the beginning, but the fact that she agreed to and supported him in this project, she was a stakeholder emotionally anyway, even if she never did anything with the project. I think that she makes a good point that he should have trusted her 
to take that leap with him because of the fact that they were emotionally doing it together. And not just depended on her to kind of save his ass when when he needed it on more than one occasion, but to actually like invite her into the project as a formal participant early on. I think that's yeah. what she would have liked, although she does have her own career at Texas Instruments. So it's hard to know if she could have even accepted that offer if it was made. I think she would have been willing to because she admitted that she has a dead end job while her parents right. raise her children, as she says. <laughs> yeah. So I think that there is merit to the fact that she wasn't itching to work at Cardiff Electric, but she saw what they were doing and was excited about it. It was something valuable, something that could change the world in some right. capacity. And she liked participating, but she wanted to be more of an investment in it. She wanted to be right. part of the freak show, as Gordon says. <laughs> yeah. And at the very least, be asked. that The fact yeah. that she wasn't asked, And not, I think, when she is things. helping, not be called her mother's name, you know? In the other room, Cameron comes back from having pancakes and watching the sunrise. And she explains that she likes the Hoover Dam, or at least that piece of it, because it is what it does. And I kind of pulled this idea of she is attracted to simplicity. She's not attracted to the complexities of, of life. The fact that she had this low-key thing happen with these boys from Xerox by eating breakfast and watching the sunrise and going to the Hoover Dam. It was something that I think was attractive to her and it helped her clear her head. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Although that piece of rock could have come from anywhere. <laughs> true. <laughs> it's true. Like, hey, I got you a piece of the Hoover Dam. <laughs> <laughs> from the lobby. <laughs> yeah. The lobby garden. From that construction site next door. Exactly. <laughs> It's worth $500. Yeah, for <laughs> this overpriced rock from the garden. She also confesses that she should have come to Joe when Bosworth came to her. Yeah. And so I think it's sort of an apology. The conversation finishes with him really endorsing her and her future. He said, look, they're doing some amazing things in Palo Alto. You should go out there. And she says, maybe we should. I picked up on that, that... Yes. She doesn't want Joe to not be in this with him. So she's clearly gotten an emotional investment with him beyond just the physical attraction that she has. I felt that tension that I don't know that he wants to do that. In some ways, I felt like this younger guy, seemingly younger guy that took her away for a few hours, Joe was saying, man, that's the future for you, Cameron. It's not for me. Like, that's not my world. Because he never answers. He never says, yeah, we should do that. I think he's still kind of attached to this idea. Maybe he would feel like he's a small fish in a big pond out there. IBM, yeah. he was big money. Here at Cardiff, he's huge. But you go out to LA, not LA, but Palo Alto, where all this stuff is happening that is overly impressive and really intimidating. I think that's kind of what I picked up on with him. And I think also they're just in different places in their lives not just personally, but professionally. I think he's sort of seeing that maybe Cameron needs to just experience something new, to do something on her own without me. But he might, as you said, just need to see this current project through, like to, to its mm -hmm. completion and whatever that end result is. He's not ready to kind of cut and run. He already did that with IBM. This is kind of his, his baby now, and he's not ready to do that again. It seems like. Well, and I, it does seem like that. I think that it's 
partly due to the fact that Gordon has influenced him by telling him, look, if you're going to be a visionary, you stick around. You don't leave. Right. And I think that has stayed in his head. But I also think that he's looking at Cameron and he said, look, you've got to spread your wings. I think mm-hmm. you would do well there. I think you would actually find more long-term success for yourself if you were in this world. Because those guys are constantly thinking about the future. Cardiff right. Electric has been pulled into the future reluctantly. Palo Alto is like, what's next? What's next? What's next? And that kind of, that's something that Silicon Valley has always had. Well, I say always in my lifetime, the idea of forward thinking, what's going to be the next big thing. The social network's great as a, as a movie to kind of show that's where the action is. You've got Mark Zuckerberg getting influenced by Sean who tells him that's where you need to be. You need to be in California because that's where the VCs are at. That's where all the action is. And I think that that's sort of hinted at here that Dallas isn't where you're going to be innovating. Dallas is where you're going to be replicating. And it's also where the money is. Like like you said, that's where the VCs are. That's where there are people with millions and billions of dollars ready to invest in whatever the future might be. You just have to convince them of your idea. And so you have to be there around them and again, this is in the early days of that, whereas today, you know, now it's a whole different world. But at this point in time, being in Dallas, you either have Lulu's money <laughs> or, <laughs> or Nathan Cardiff's money. Uh, but as far as we know, that's about it. That's about all they, yeah. they have to work with. We haven't seen Lulu again. I'm kind of curious what happened to her. She's not talking to Nathan, apparently. So maybe that's why <laughs> right. we don't hear from her because she's not returning yeah. his phone calls. <laughs> so we finally get back to the exhibition floor. And there's this really cool banter about the various vendors, which I think is sort of a highlight reel of like who's yeah. up and coming. AMD mentioned, I think AMD is mentioned as far as like Gordon's t-shirt. Yes. Uh, yeah. Windows is having bugs, apparently. Right. I think Cam says something like, oh, I've heard really good things about Windows. Oh, yeah, but it's having a lot of bugs or something like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> and then Joe is kind of impressed with HP's new touchscreen. Oh, right. So that's... Yeah. a. That's something interesting. And, and I don't, I didn't fact check to find out, okay, what was happening in 83 with these vendors, but I thought it was cool if you're familiar with a lot of those, just to kind of make these little side comments about, okay, so, th- so AMD's got a presence there. Microsoft yep. has a presence, HP, they're among giants, a giant right. among giants. Even if they weren't case. giants yet, they, they would soon be. And sometimes, you know, these companies were just showing off new ideas that, sometimes never went anywhere. So it's right. just because they're showing off a, a touch screen doesn't mean that it actually was implemented at any point in the near future. It just means that they're, yeah. you know, they're bragging. They're like, oh, look at this new technology that might be around in 10 years or more. It's a place to, to sort of showcase what they're developing or what they're working on. I'll bet they got that touch screen technology from Sudoku, that Japanese company. <laughs> Sudoku. On those little, <laughs> on their LCD watches. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a ruckus along the way. And or across the way, and we find out that Hunt is there pitching the slingshot, which was like, wow, what a dig, what a dig at the giant. This whole David and Goliath analogy that sort of plays itself out is brilliant and like awful at the same time. I couldn't tell. Maybe you can confirm. Was he representing Ti? I'm assuming he was, but I didn't. I see don't a think TI. so. I, so here's the thing: he he quit Ti. And yes, what's his face? Brian, the na- Brian. next door neighbor was there and he also was fired. So in my mind, these two kind of banded together to start their own little operation independently. But 
obviously utilizing knowledge and information that they acquire from both Cardiff and TI. And I have to say, I kind of called this in one of the previous episodes when I was like, what about, is Hunt kind of fishing for information from Donna? Is he using her? But I didn't really want to believe that was the case. I just kind of got, I got a bad vibe about Hunt and I kind of didn't expect him to be the the villain of this series, but he kind of is. (laughs) Yeah. He's a villain. I mean, we have other villains. Nathan Carter's another villain. Lulu's sort of a half villain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, by by proxy. I, I was surprised to see Brian. Made yep. sense, but I was I was surprised, like, oh, makes sense for Hunt based off of your theory. Yep, I could see that. But then the fact that he's recruited Brian here, who just looks like a little like a minion in this scene. <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> whatever, you suck, Brian. I a little hate smirk you. <laughs> on his face. Yeah. Yeah. And Hunt says, um, as Goliath found out quote, you know, the giant, victory comes to the guy who got there first. Wow. I mean, the, <laughs> of course, the reaction by Donna is priceless, where she just attacks him. And I I can't say I that's not unjustified. Like, it's, yeah. it's pretty bad. <laughs> I kind of half expected Gordon to attack Brian, like, to, like mm-hmm. you know, to be like a full-on brawl, <laughs> you know, just yeah. because of the history there. But yes, yeah, the, absolutely. the thing about this presentation, which kind of confused me, not I guess it just it doesn't make sense. They basically presented a picture of a product that looked almost identical to the giant. They didn't have a prototype, but they, yet they were saying they're going to have it in stores by Christmas or something like that. My question is, if they're doing this independently, right, it's just the two of them, look how much money, look how many millions and how many people had to work for eight months to develop the giant. Now, granted, they're stealing all their hard work and research to to speed things along here, but they don't have anything physical to show anybody. So part of me was like, are they just bluffing? Do they really have the capability to make this? Or is this all some sort of elaborate scheme? Again, I'm just thinking Hunt's a schemer. Is he trying to, and later on, he offers $2 million to basically buy all the technology from Cardiff and it makes you think is this his ploy it's like to basically do basically to do what they did to the brothers from protonics to kind of trick them into yeah. giving up i don't know it's just that's where my brain went <laughs> well it's a, that is a that's a brilliant point as i was thinking about because i didn't notice that they didn't have an actual prototype so when i look at that and i hear what you're saying my thought combined with the conversation with joe later tells me Hunt is taking a gamble with nothing in his pocket. Right. And he's telling Joe, you can do this. So being able to buy all that stock right. or buy all the, basically you're, you're buying the, the prototype and then you're going to sell it for cheap. That was, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't disagree with you. Put your own logo on it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's something new that I hadn't thought about. That's a really, really great point. Because really what he's pitching is everything that he had found out right. from either Donna or from uh, Brian. Nick. Brian, thank you. Yeah. But that makes that makes total sense that if you don't have a prototype, you really... Right. And, they, and this is before they had found out about Cam's kind of new interface, kind of more interactive interface. So clearly theirs didn't have any of that uniqueness to it. It was just a cheaper and faster product because they mm-hmm. stripped it down to its core functionality that it had to have. So sure. anyway, 
I'm not trusting these guys. I, I, I'm, I'm suspicious of them going forward. So, <laughs> well, we only have one episode left. I know. To go forward, and unless something happens in the second in season, future seasons, I, I don't. I haven't seen any of them. Yet. So, yeah, they may come yeah. back. So for for this season, for sure, there's there's only one episode to kind of find some resolution. <laughs> right. So this might be TBD for Hunt and Company, <laughs> whatever that <laughs> company is. So that whole thing creates this rift with Donna and Gordon. They go back up to the card of sweet and he confronts her about her relationship with Hunt. I don't want to dissect the whole conversation, but I do want to just point out the fact that this is probably the most honest, raw dialogue that we have seen with Donna and Gordon. And I think it's just this kind of culmination of all the tension that as an audience we felt coming out finally. I love that she says, it wasn't an affair, but it should have been. And the way that Carrie Bechet delivers that line, it's like she has this sort of, not resentment for Gordon, but she's like very definitive. Like, she says, I wanted him. And she didn't say I needed him. She didn't say he was there for me. She legit was like, I am missing something that you are not giving me. And this is what I did. And she's unapologetic about it. And while from a marital standpoint, it breaks my heart to hear that, I can't disagree with how she feels because if the giant has taken over his priority list above her and her children, then yes, she has a justifiable reason to feel the way that she does. Apart from getting into the moral implications of it, I think this raw conversation brings out just a incredible amount of honesty from both of them. The fact that he calls her a child, oh Mm -hmm. my gosh, that is so degrading. Because up to this point, he has semi-elevated her to a pedestal because of all that she's done. And it really feels like when he says that to her, it negates everything that he has given her in terms of how he says he's valued her. Like, I could feel that, that it's almost like saying, but, you know, you're all these things, but, and then she's not going to even remember all that other good stuff that he said about her, that he's expressed about her. Calling your wife a child I mean, I think that and the whole, it wasn't an affair, but it should have been, are the two lines that stood out to me in this conversation. Yeah. And I agree with you that this whole season has kind of built to this moment, even going back to the very first scene in the very first episode where she picks him up drunk at the local police station, you know, because this is even before he started working on the project. There clearly were, were issues that went back much farther than the the Cardiff PC development project. So I think there's a reason that the whole series started with that scene. It was kind of like, this is a rocky relationship. There's history here. There's problems here. It's not the perfect, you know, picturesque suburban marriage that they not might want it to look like, but it's not. So she leaves. Joe comes in and says, we're dead when talking about the faster, cheaper slingshot. Yeah. And then he leaves... And then Gordon grabs a beer and starts dismantling the giant. At this point, I don't know what he's doing. So again, kudos to the production team and to the writing team for allowing us to see hints of what Gordon's doing before he actually does it. So he's a a mystery to us for a couple of minutes, a couple of times this episode. And uh, I like that. It is funny, though, that he's constantly uh, drinking beer by it while he's disassembling it. Earlier when they were finishing it on the bed, Donna and... Gordon had their room service on the static 
you know, yes. area, static free area <laughs> with the computer. I'm like, guys, you're eating and drinking next to your entire lives <laughs> right here. Your yes. professional lives. But hey, you know, at this point, I think there's nowhere else to go but down in a way. So in my head, he's just going to get drunk and like just take it apart because he's, he's like, my life's over. I don't want this thing around anymore, but we'll, you know, we'll find out momentarily that that's not true. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, going down, uh, Joe goes down to the hotel bar and starts talking to Hunt, doing this kind of back and forth dance of negotiating and trying to get the upper hand. Hunt offers that large amount that you mentioned earlier. Joe balks at it. He's like, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Hunt mentions that this query-based OS is what killed his ability to get to the market first. He's not wrong. And what he says next, I think, is probably one of the most sobering lines of this episode. Joe says, you won't be anything because you're not creative. And Hunt says, you seem to have forgotten we're in the compatible business. You tried to be good. We just had to be good enough. What I was reminded of was there was this really enjoyable made-for-TV movie on TNT called Pirates of Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah. yeah. Noah Wiley. Yeah. Noah Wiley and um, and uh, another 80s icon. From the um, Breakfast Club. What's his name? Uh... Anthony Michael Hall. There it is. Thank you. <laughs> Coming through again with the, with the Googling <laughs> or yeah. with the internet search if we, <laughs> so we can't use the word Google. So a similar type of uh, line was said in that movie where Noah Wiley playing Steve Jobs is like, We're better than you are. We have better stuff. You don't get it, Steve. That doesn't matter. And I think, I'd like to believe that the lines from that movie were influencing this moment because it's true. When it comes to people as consumers at that time, seemingly they just wanted something that was going to work for them, as we'll right. see later on. And Hunt had that sort of idea in his back pocket. And he said, look, we just have to be good enough. We just have to be willing to do enough to get the consumer to buy our product at a reasonable price, knowing that it doesn't matter if it breaks in two years. We'll just right. have version two or version three ready to go. You know, Get them hooked and then start f- selling them as much as you can. So right. he, he makes a really great point, And I think it leaves Joe a little speechless. Mm-hmm. Or it's the mentality of, well, we'll have a whole repair business in place where if you have a problem with it, you come in and we, we fix it for you and we make more money off the repairs and parts. So it's like, there's a lot of ways to make money off of a product like this. It doesn't have to be the necessarily be the best or be the most creative. It just has to meet, the bare minimum of what the user needs. I mean, the same could be said about cars. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people can't afford the really fancy cars, but the more affordable cars are the ones that sell because people just need to get to and from work and they don't need all the bells and whistles necessarily. Right. So the next moment is in the elevator. This is a nice like unspoken moment with Joe holding Cameron's hand as they go back up to the suite. And it's kind of like the beginning of the end. And then we get to the Carter suite I love the way that the cinematography switches to handheld cameras to create this sense of like a little bit of chaos. Right. Because you have 
Gordon sort of pacing back and forth in his undershirt, drinking beer. And he says, it's amazing how much beer tastes better when it costs $5 a bottle. Yeah. And Joe asks, everything okay? And that's when we find out that he stripped out the OS and replaced it with DOS, making it faster and cheaper. Cameron's line, You took it out. I mean, everything that made it unique. We had a problem. Now I have a product. Mm-hmm. Oh, it just broke my heart. And the way that she responds, it's almost like someone killed her child. Yeah. Like, again, those facial expressions that Mackenzie Davis makes make it so compelling to see how deeply she cared for what they created, what she specifically created, and how much she's hurt by it. Whereas you have these two guys, Joe is in this moment, he's making a decision, and his decision is this is what sells. I got to go back yeah. to plan A. And she's absolutely hurt by it. Yeah, yeah. I think he says, It's what's right for the machine. Which is such a cold, calculated response. He obviously is concerned and cares about what she feels and thinks, but he knows after that conversation he had with Hunt, you know, he's not going to let Hunt take him down. He's going to do whatever he can do to win. Gordon just presented him with a winning tactic, and he's going to take Mm -hmm. it. Just that, I agree. I think the camera work was really good in this scene. That handheld approach kind of makes you, as the viewer, feel like you're in the room with them and this mm-hmm. sort of, in this kind of, you're a fly in the wall. You're watching as this sort of chaotic back and forth unfolds. It's really a good choice. I'm not always a fan of handheld, like when it's overly used. I think there are a lot of shows that use it way too much, but when used sparingly and for very specific purposes, I think it can be a very effective you know, tool in the cinematographer's toolkit. Absolutely. So then we're on the exhibit floor and Joe is selling the giant. Knowing what we've just seen on the outside, it's so sparkly and energetic when he kind of grins and he talks about being able to play games after you've come home with it, after you've done a, a long day of, of work. Yeah. And he, he goes, he's got to watch out for those alligators or whatever it yeah. is. Just that little... <laughs> smirk but we know based off what we've seen it feels very cold and scripted like it doesn't feel organic even though he can sell it because he's a fantastic salesman this is the joe that we met in episode one this is the joe that is single-minded nobody is on his radar in terms of like he has nobody that he cares about in this moment right he's just selling because he's got a product and watching how he does that he even doubles down on the coldness of the machine. He says, This is a machine. It's not your friend. It's your employee. It works for you. And the way it should be evaluated is thus. How well and how fast does it do the things I ask? Answer instantly. Anything less is a waste of your time. What is the margin of error? Answer zero. Anything more and you failed. Here's another word. One that's infinitely more important than unique will ever be. Speed. Let's cut through the bullshit and act like adults. You want speed. And this machine is the fastest one you'll find. Period. And I know that he's hurting because he doesn't want to sell it this way. Like he was proud of what it was and now it's just another machine. He knows, or at least he thinks he does, that they want faster and cheaper. That's what every consumer wants. Right. You want speed. You don't want somebody to be your friend. You don't want somebody to make you feel special. And he's basically negating everything that made the OS what it was, right. which is 
expensive but unique. Right. Doesn't he say like you can get a pet if you want somebody, you know, if you want to have somebody to talk to or interact with. This is yeah, a tool to get your work done. Yeah. So it's bland, it's normal, but the scene does something pretty amazing. Gordon steps in and he asks, are there any questions? And somebody asks, how did you get the compactness to happen? And he goes, chips on both sides, which is what, of course, Hunt said. Yeah. And one of the the spectators said, who thought of that? He goes, my wife, Donna. And he he gives her a little nod, a little credit, which I think is great. Maybe, Maybe there's some reconciliation happening. And then the best dialogue (laughs) of the episode happens that vengeance that you wanted from Gordon to to Brian happens verbally. (laughs) Brian goes, how'd you fix the heat problem? We vented the side panels and changed the chip layout. Got a lot easier after we fired you. I mean, it was just so blatant. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, Gordon. Great. You don't have to punch him now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hunt's face, by the way, was priceless when that happened. Because he was yeah. like, oh, okay. <laughs> There's some tension here. And I, yeah. I'm not going to be privy to that. And again, they have a real computer in front of them. They don't just have a picture of one. So there's they have a lot more going for them than Hunt had. I, which is, again, why I feel yeah. like Hunt was really just trying to be do a, a con, you know, to get them to take an offer. And again, maybe he spoke to Nathan Cardiff. Who knows, right? Maybe he was. He, yeah, I, I just think there was something more to just their plan than were that we were privy to. But I don't know if that will ever be revealed or not. Not saying anything <laughs> at this point. No, just living in the moment. Yep. Exactly. One more thing that that gets said is, I think, a confession by Joe mm-hmm. and Gordon when they are responding to the rumor that IBM's coming out with compatible. Joe says, IBM scraps more projects in a day than any of us attempt in a year. What we did was harder. We took one idea all the way. And it cost us. It cost us people. But the evidence of that cost is here. It's in the damn metal. And I think in that moment, both he and Gordon, with that little nod that they give to each other, realize that they don't love this product. This is not the product that they were working on over the last year. The OS was a significant part of it. Yes, they got it compact. Yes, the chipset, everything was good. But I think both Joe and Gordon in their own ways realized that the software half of it was the soul. It's the thing that people were going to interact with. Yes, it would be supported by the hardware and it's, you don't take away from the mutual support that both had for each other. But when you take out the soul, when you take out the thing that made it different from everything else, you've lost something. And in this case, yeah. it looks like they've lost Cameron. They kind of lost the wow factor. I think that what they have is great in that it's smaller, it's faster, it's cheaper, blah, 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 all those good things that people will, will want for buying a product. But it's not going to be the kind of thing that makes people say, whoa, you know what I mean? It's not going to have that jaw drop moment that they were hoping for. And, uh, and I, uh, one... <laughs> One other thing that happened at the end of the scene, if you notice, there was a slow clap from the crowd. The classic only in movies yeah. does this happen where like one guy starts clapping and then another and then the whole crowd around them yeah. is clapping. The slow claps. hand clap is great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great. Well, apparently that sales pitch was enough to get 
70,000 units at 900 a pop to Computer City. At least that was the... That's the offer, yeah. That's the yeah. offer at this point. Which I did the math. That's $63 million. I mean, if that's I think, correct. I think Nathan Cardiff is... I think he's set for life. Yeah, I think they're in good shape. Here's the thing, to be fair. They can now, if this goes through... They can make Cam's computer the next version and make it even better than ever. They have, if they have sixty three million, I mean, minus cost, you know, and everything, they they're gonna have the kind of cash they need coming in to really develop whatever they want to next. So there is that argument that you got to get something out there, make it successful, make some money, and then you can get to the next the next version. And we would expect there to be a celebration, but there's not really. It's more like a mourning period. They're back in a car yeah. suite. With the champagne, I like the fact that Cameron's OS, this chipboard, is just sitting independent of the computer, like like a heart's been ripped out yeah. of of a body. It's it's very very symbolic. And Donna says the champagne needs ice. It's it's warm. And Joe goes to get ice. I forgot about this, and then when I saw it, I was like, I gotta ask Adam what he thinks about this because I feel like this should be the finale of the season right? because of what happens. It's so brilliant how this works. So he goes to this suite. It's not lively. It's just quiet. It's like people are just, it's like they're having a secret seance or something. There's there's candles around. Yeah. No music, no one drinking. It's just a a small crowd huddled around something. It's like, what's going on? And then the camera comes in and we see, the Macintosh computer, a guy puts a disc into the drive, it lights up, and we hear, Hello, I am Macintosh. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's the wow factor that they wanted. That's what I was saying. The exactly. wow, like, what? Yeah. And like, they're going to go call people and be like, a computer just talked to me. You know, that's what they were hoping mm-hmm. for. And that computer probably costs four times what the oh yeah what the I think giant it was like does. four thousand dollars or something like that at the time wow. it, it, obscene amount you know which is again why like you mentioned Pirates of Silicon Valley it, it was better it was it looked better it was more expensive but it wasn't attainable for a lot of people at the time mm-hmm. so and when I watched this the first time not noticing the details what I saw this time was that. Joe was absolutely impressed with the fact that it talks, like, or it speaks. Those are the last lines of the episode. But I also noticed the fact that it's the GUI, the, the interface that's completely different than the text-based stuff yeah. that he thought was revolutionary. And it's got a mouse. There were no computers that had that. And I thought it was kind of ironic that this computer is debuting, and you got these guys working for Xerox who think that their stuff's amazing, but apparently... Maybe they, that kid doesn't know that they've stolen all this stuff from Xerox. Uh, that's the thing. You know, like the mouse, everyone attributes it to Apple and, and the Mac, but it was a technology that Xerox basically didn't know what to do with. And so that's where, again, I think in that movie, Bill Gates says, uh, Good artists create, good guys great create steal. others, the, yeah, better ones steal. Yeah. So. So that's what that's what the industry was like. You know, everything gets taken by one the next person and then made better and then and it evolves and changes and but yeah, this is a, this was a fantastic ending and it kind of proves the point that Boz made earlier in the season when he said that Cameron was the future because this is what Cameron sort of where her brain belongs. Like she kind of should be working for Apple at this time because that's right. those really are her people more than 
I think the Cardiff engineers were who just wanted yeah. to make it faster and cheaper and all of that. They were thinking about the short term gains instead of the long term. Exactly. Not like where gains. where is where are we going to go long term? What's the future yeah. of computing of the of the Internet? All of that. Like that's sort of the short sighted approach that most of the manufacturers were. And it makes sense. Like you're just like most corporations, they're really if they have sh- shareholders, they're just focused on the next quarterly earnings and like how much profit can we show our shareholders? They're not thinking that far out. And no. and that was a problem for Apple at the time too, because clearly within a year, Steve was ousted from his own company because he wasn't doing things the way their their board of directors wanted him to. They they felt he was too much of a loose cannon and just going his own way. So whenever you get big, things like this happen. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious because this timing-wise, this all makes sense. This was, you know, this is the fall or close to the end of 1983 in the series. And then of course, Super Bowl, January 1984 was the infamous commercial for the Macintosh, which was directed by Ridley Scott that only ever aired on television one time. And that was it. That one time never replayed ever again on TV. Of course, you can find it on YouTube, but it's widely considered one of the most influential and important advertising pieces of all time for the way it was unveiled. And, uh, you know, the old quote. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the title of the next episode. So I'm curious to see how much they're going to go down into that area, because this was obviously a turning point in the PC revolution. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's going to wrap up uh, this episode of an original series. Adam, you mentioned that the next episode is entitled 1984. So I think we're going to be pushing forward a little bit. That's my assumption, but it sounds like, yeah, like maybe we'll jump. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about it. I'm excited to watch it first, obviously. And uh, (laughs) I'm pretty sure the conversation is going to be just as good. Yeah, I'm I'm psyched. I can't wait. It's uh, I'm gonna be sad to say goodbye to the show for a while because I think I've been really really enjoying this. I think this is one that we can safely say will continue this journey. Well, thank you everyone right. for tuning in and joining this conversation. I'm Patch. He's Adam, and we are out of here.